Hi everyone, I'm Alistair Stevens. Welcome to There and Back Again. Tonight, in our 31st session in our exploration of Middle-earth, we delve deep into Moria and make it across the bridge of Khazad-dûm, where we face an ancient evil and most of us make it out alive. Most of us. I mean, practically everyone. Practically everyone will survive tonight's chapter. More on that later. Questions can be asked in the YouTube chat. You can also ask questions through the week over on Twitter using the hashtag TabAgain, T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N, or you can email me directly at pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. If we have some extra time at the end of tonight's session, and we might because this is a relatively short chapter, and I think I've only pulled 10 slides, maybe 11 slides. I have pulled most of the chapter for slides tonight, it is fair to say. But if we have a little extra time, we might do a little Q&A just to take us up to our full 90-minute uh, mark. But you know me. I tend to run long rather than running short, so it's possible that we will run out of time for that. But just in case, have some questions ready, I guess, is what I'm saying to you. Before we begin with this week's reading, let's do a quick timeline primer so that we can, uh, so that we can stay on top of what has happened in Moria, so that we can kind of have a sense of the passage of time and the Fellowship's somewhat precarious position here surrounded by ancient dwarven history. Let me share this slide with you here. So here you can see that in the year 1980 of the Third Age, the Moria Dwarves awaken Durin's Bane, which kills Durin VI, King of Khazad-dum. Uh, Moria has at this point stood effectively since the creation of Arda, since the Dwarves awoke. We don't know exactly when that was, but it has stood since the beginning of recorded history, at least in 1980 of the Third Age, something like, you know, uh, what is that, a thousand years ago, just over a thousand years ago, uh, the Moria Dwarves delve too deep in their search for Mithril and awaken the unknown evil that lurks beneath the mountains. More on that later. The following year, during the sixth sun, Nyan is also killed and the Dwarves flee Moria. They go out into the world. This is when the kingdom of Erebor is founded. Then we cut forward 800 years, basically, to the Battle of Azanulbazar. Uh, the Battle of Azanulbazar is basically the final battle in the last war of dwarves and orcs. The war of dwarves and orcs began when the orc chieftain of Moria, an orc by the name of Azog, captured and mutilated Thror, the king of Erebor, the king of Durin's folk. Azog branded his own name in runes onto Thror's severed head and then let Thror's companion escape so the dwarves would know that the orcs now ruled Moria. Full of a righteous fury, Thror's son Thryon summoned a great army of dwarves, including, crucially, some dwarves who were not of Durin's folk. We have firebeards fire and broadbeams from the Blue Mountains and others from the far east of Middle-earth. We don't necessarily know a great deal about the other dwarven clans, if clans is the right word, the other dwarven cultures on Middle-earth, but we do know that some other dwarves besides Durin's folk were included in the the War of Dwarves and Orcs, and for six years, this vast army of dwarves scourges the Misty Mountains, taking out orc stronghold after orc stronghold, just punishing the orcs for the actions of Azog. We finally meet in the Battle of Azanulbazar, the Battle of Dimraldale, there on the eastern edge of Moria, where the dwarf army smashes into the orc army and slaughters them effectively. They could not, however, retake 
Moria, because Moria was still under the dominion of Durin's Bane. So despite the fact that the dwarves won that war, they couldn't retake their ancestral homeland. So that was in the, the year 27, uh, 2799 of the Third Age, basically 200 years ago. That is the battle, as I've said before, where Thorin earns his nickname, Oakenshield, when he takes up the, the, the oaken um, branch, the, the, the log, I don't know, the, the piece of wood that he wields as a shield for the remainder of that fight. Then we cut ahead to after Bilbo's adventure with the dwarves, to the year 2942 of the the third age where Bilbo returns to the Shire bearing the ring all the way from Erebor. A few years later, in 2949, Gandalf and Balin visit Bilbo in the Shire. That's going to be directly referenced in tonight's reading. And then in 2989, 40 years later, a company of dwarves led by Balin return to Moria with the intent of taking back their ancestral home, taking back the 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 home of their entire people. Um, Balin is killed, as we learned in last week's reading, in 2994, five years after attempting to recolonize Moria, and that that colony is destroyed utterly, though news of that destruction has not spread terribly far. And then in the year 3019, very early in the year 3019, we're in January of 3019 at this point, the fellowship itself enters Moria. Uh, Merging Puppy asks, why was Durin's Bane fine with the orcs hanging out in Moria? Well, primarily because both Durin's Bane and the orcs, in a sense, serve the shadow, or in a larger sense, were created from the same darkness. The Balrogs, as we'll discuss later, were created by Melkor, were corrupted by Melkor, and served him for long ages. They served him prior to the First Age, back in the years of trees, when when the, the years were themselves uncounted. We've no idea how long Balrogs have actually been around for. We do know that Durin's Bane fled from the War of Wrath and has been hiding out under the Misty Mountains for about 5,000 years before he is awoken. So he has been in or around Moria for 6,000 years by the time the Fellowship encounter him in this week's reading. They're both evil, as Alan says, capital E, yes. That's that's very accurate, basically. Uh, I don't necessarily think that... Uh, that they have a profound understanding. They don't necessarily have a, you know, a cordial relationship. They don't necessarily have a detente, but they do have a working relationship where they can oppose the forces of light. Yes. Good. Poor scared little Balrog, says Jackie Boatman. Uh, that may be the first time that phrase has ever been said or typed or uttered or conceived in the history of the world. But yes, I'm sure he didn't have a great time hanging out under the Misty Mountains, um, particularly not. I, I mean, Gollum is probably just a few caves over, right? It would have been really great if they could have just got together and talked. Hey, how you doing? Bearing an ancient evil? That's such a coincidence. I'm an ancient evil. Wow. We should have, I can bring, you know, I've got Settlers of Catan. I can bring it over. We can play a little. Oh, you like riddle games more okay we can do that for for you know a thousand years or whatever um <laughs> sure that seems like a perfectly legitimate thing that could have happened deep beneath the earth here under the misty mountains um so with all of that in our minds and kind of that that framework in place Let's get into this week's reading. We follow up from the discovery of the tomb of Balin right at the end of last week's reading with this passage from the very beginning of the chapter. The company of the ring stood silent beside the tomb of Balin. Frodo thought of Bilbo and his long friendship with the dwarf and of Balin's visit to the Shire long ago. 
in that dusty chamber in the mountains that seemed a thousand years ago and on the other side of the world. At length they stirred and looked up, and began to search for anything that would give them tidings of Balan's fate, or show them what had become of his folk. There was another smaller door on the other side of the chamber, under the shaft. By both the doors they could now see many bones were lying, and among them were broken swords and axe-heads and cloven shields and helms. Some of the swords were crooked, orc scimitars with blackened blades." There were many recesses cut in the rock of the walls, and in them were large iron-bound chests of wood. All had been broken and plundered, but beside the shattered lid of one there lay the remains of a book. It had been slashed and stabbed and partly burned, and it was so stained with black and other dark marks like old blood that little of it could be read. Gandalf lifted it carefully, but the leaves cracked and broke as he laid it on a slab. He poured over it for some time without speaking. Frodo and Gimli, standing at his side, could see as he gingerly turned the leaves that they were written by many different hands, in runes both of Moria and of Dale, and here and there in Elvish script. At last Gandalf looked up. "'It seems to be a record of the fortunes of Balin's folk,' he said. "'I guess that it began with their coming to Dimbledale nigh on thirty years ago. The pages seem to have numbers referring to the years after their arrival.' The top page is marked one, three, so at least two are missing from the beginning. Listen to this. We'll get into their, uh, get into the actual reading in just a moment. But as we look around here, we see the wreckage of warfare here in this this chamber of records, this hall of records deep within the belly of Khazadum, which echoes, you know, a similar scene upon the return to Erebor back in The Hobbit. And that's no coincidence. We are tying back very powerfully to The Hobbit. The whole notion of Balin returning to Moria to retake their ancestral home, to purge it of darkness, to cleanse it. We must think that Balin figured he was on a roll, right? Let's take a wildly implausible journey to Erebor without a real plan and hope that we can reclaim our treasure, brackets, reclaim our home from Smaug the Terrible? Well, consider how that worked out. Fortune and prophecy seemed to be on our sides. Chance, if chance you call it, was working in our favor. The dwarves have retaken Erebor, albeit at the, loss, uh, at the cost of Thorin Oakenshield. So Balin might well be justified in thinking, okay, We took Erebor, now it's time to take Moria. The swing of history is on our side. We can do this thing, but the darkness within Moria is far darker than the darkness within Erebor, and it didn't work out quite so well. We do have a reference here to orc scimitars, which is the second time that we've referred to the orcs using these curved single-handed swords. Uh, there is a reference back in Goblin Town to, uh, to the goblins using scimitars back in the pages of The Hobbit. So this seems to be a fairly consistent type of weapon for goblins slash orcs. And as I've said before, goblins and orcs are the same. They are intended to be the same creatures. Goblin is the older kind of fairy tale word, which is more appropriate for the tone and the register of the Hobbit. Orc is much more consistent with Tolkien's constructed languages. Thus, we use it more readily in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. That seems to be the division there. So destruction has befallen the dwarves of Moria, but we have this record, the record of the fortunes of Balin's folk. As Gandalf says, let's move into our reading of these pages. 
the pages of, of Mazarbul, which is the Dwarvish word for records. This is the hall of, of Mazarbul, or Mazarbul, I suppose, and these are the pages of Mazarbul. And I've got actually here on the next slide, let me show you these, because I just adore these. These are the actual pages. Tolkien created these pages, partly as a creative endeavor, and partly kind of in accordance with his original conceit that he was merely translating and adapting the stories of Middle-earth after they had been passed down to him. So he was acting as a conduit for these stories more than he was acting as a, a single authority, a single creator within this space. That's a conceit that had kind of fallen apart at the highest level by the time that we get to the Lord of the Rings, but was still kind of present in his creative process. Obviously, as you'll remember from the, the front cover of The Hobbit, you know, this is supposed to be translated by Tolkien after being written by Bilbo and, and possibly Frodo too. It's unclear exactly how much of the original pages of The Hobbit were by Bilbo himself, but certainly most of them at least, right? So I know, right? The, the Ollie Paul says in the YouTube chat, imagine Tolkien as a dungeon master. I know that's exactly what I thought. And Karen says they look like the burned pages of the Beowulf manuscript. That is exactly the uh, the point of reference here, I think, that, uh, that the professor was trying to echo. There is a... Uh, a manuscript of Beowulf that was burned in the 18th century, horribly burned in the 18th century. The um, Let me look up. I've got the name here. The Catonian Beowulf manuscript was horribly burned in 1731. And then, worse still, as though the fire wasn't bad enough, attempts to restore the Catonian manuscript ruined it still further making it all but completely illegible. That is a huge and significant loss. And Tolkien was obviously, the, the Tolkien, the scholar of Beowulf that he was, even at this point in his career, was obviously mindful of that connection. If you read these very carefully, if you actually look into the history of Middle-earth, Christopher Tolkien does a fantastic job of translating exactly what is written here, smudge for smudge, rune for rune. And it is very, very similar to what is written in Gandalf's exploration of these pages uh, to come ahead. Yeah, as Karen says, the only, at, the, at that point, the only su surviving manuscript of Beowulf, yes. Tolkien would have been the DM to end all DMs, says Save Girl. Yes, yes, exactly right. And if you've ever run your own... Uh, your own uh, Dungeons and Dragons game, then you've probably done, you know, tea staining the pages and burning them in the oven and all of that stuff just to make your maps look completely cool. You know, that's, yes. <laughs> oh, this is lovely. Uh, Jonar, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Sometimes it sounds like Alistair is channeling J.R.R. as his voice takes on the same gravelly sound that he had when he read his books and recordings. Uh, the professor had, for my money, one of the all-time great voices, the great kind of stentorian, gravitas-infused uh, voices. So I, I take that as a huge compliment. Thank you very much. Um, okay, <laughs> let's look then at the contents of these pages. We drove out orcs from the great gate and guard, I think. The next word is blurred and burned, probably room. We slew many in the bright, I think, sun in the dale. Flowey was killed by an arrow. He slew the great. Then there is a blur, followed by Flowey under grass near Miramir. The next line or two I cannot read. Then comes, we have taken the 21st hall of North End to dwell in. There is, I cannot read what. A shaft is mentioned. Then Balin has set up his seat in the chamber of Mazabul. The chamber of records, said Gimli. I guess that is where we now stand. Well, I can read no more for a long way, said Gandalf, except the word gold and Durin's axe and something helm. Then Balin is now lord of Moria. That seems to end a chapter. 
After some stars, another hand begins, and I can see we found true silver, and later the word well-forged, and then something, I have it, mithril. And the last two lines, Owen to seek for the upper armories of Third Deep, something, go westwards, a blur, to Hollingate. Gandalf paused and set a few leaves aside. There are several pages of the same sort, rather hastily written and much damaged, he said, but I can make little of them in this light. Now there must be a number of leaves missing, because they begin to be numbered five, the fifth year of the colony, I suppose. Let me see. No, they are too cut and stained. I cannot read them. We might do better in the sunlight. Wait, here is something. A large, bold hand using an elvish script. That would be Ori's hand, said Gimli, looking over the wizard's arm. He could write well and speedily, and often used the elvish characters. I love, as many of you know, from listening to my other podcasts, I'm sure, I love the cinematic conceit of found footage. Give me a movie that purports to be the actual recorded document of events, and I will adore it, whether it's the Blair Witch Project, or it's Cloverfield, or it's goodness knows, the paranormal activity movies. I will watch those things too. I adore found footage as a conceit. So it thrills me that we get a kind of documentary found footage here within the pages of The Lord of the Rings. And it thrills me all the more that we get some very similar kind of structural conceits here. There is something Blair Witch about Gandalf reading these pages, this hastily scrawled account of what has happened. We drove out orcs from the great gate and guardroom. We slew many in the bright sun in the dale. Flowey was killed by an arrow. He slew the great, presumably an acknowledgement that Flowey fell in combat, that he had managed to accomplish some great victory. But then Flowey undergrass near Miramir, presumably Flowey has been buried there. The next line or two he cannot read. We have taken the 21st hall of North End to dwell in. There is something. Then Balin has set up his seat in the chamber of Miserable, and it is no coincidence that Balin should set up his seat, his throne, his his office, effectively, right here in, uh, in the chamber of records, because it is about history, the, the return conquest of Moria, the recolonization of Moria, the taking back of Moria is about dwarven history. The throne room of Moria belongs to Durin and Durin's line, but the room of records belongs to all the dwarves of Durin's folk. And it seems entirely appropriate, given what we know of Balin from the pages of The Hobbit, that this is where he should, should build his headquarters, as it were. Jackie's asking me, have you seen The Visit? I have not, but I'm kind of into that. Uh, is that that's, that's found footage, I take it? I'm going to have to check it out because I think I've seen pretty much every found footage movie, so I'm going to continue doing that. There is an immediacy and an intimacy to found footage that I just adore. I find it enormously narratively compelling as well as uh, a real challenge for structure. You know, it, We are forced to be relentlessly inventive in our pursuit of, of found footage as, as a cinematic conceit and i think that's true too here you know we have the account of the battle we drove out orcs from the great gate and guardroom we drove them out into the sun of dimraldale and there we slew them our conquest of moria at least in its first movement was successful flowey was slain that is unfortunate slain by an arrow killed from a distance that is unfortunate but we have taken moria again balin has set up his seat in the chamber of miserable well i can read no more for a long way says gandalf except for the word gold and durin's axe and something helm then balin is now lord of moria and that seems to end a chapter 
appropriately enough. Then after some stars, a chapter break, if you will, which is a, a lovely kind of nod to textual convention too. A new hand begins. I see we found true silver, later the word well-forged, and something, I have it, mithril. And the last two lines, Owen to seek for the upper armories of third deep, go westwards to Holland Gate. So we're basically separating our forces at this point. Someone, I would, Owen, is going to go to the upper armories to try and, and gather supplies and armaments there. And then presumably someone else is going to go westward out to the Holland Gate, back to the watcher in the water. Now, by the time we get to the fifth year of the colony, someone else is writing a large, bold hand in elvish script. Ori's hand, says Gimli, confirming that, that he writes well and speedily and often uses the elvish characters. But unfortunately, what he has to report is not, uh, not joyous. Um, Let's see here. Uh, oh, yes, Lady Sorka is saying, well, Balin is technically of Durin's line. I think he was next in line after Thorin's Stonehelm. Seriously, the journey to Erebor included, like, the entire line, except Dian, Thorin, S, and Gimli. Yes, no, that's absolutely fair. He is of Durin's line and of Durin's folk. But when I talk about the line of Durin, I'm basically talking about the, uh, the actual line of named dwarven kings that we discussed last week when we were talking about Gimli's song. The prophecy of Durin the Seventh, awakening and, and return turning to Moria, or at least ruling in Moria, is, is kind of what I'm referring to. The kings of Moria, up until the awakening of the Balrog, were called Durin. They were of his line. Durin VI was slain by the Balrog, and that seemed to kind of end his line. But again, that prophecy exists that he will return. So it's appropriate that at least in the first instance, Balin sets up in the Hall of Records, though we must note, Balin is now Lord of Moria. That doesn't seem to be just a, a, a boast. It doesn't seem to be a, just a, 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 in recognition of him driving out the orcs from this place. He seems to have actually taken charge in some sense, which is must have been powerful, must have been astonishing. For those five years, things must have felt pretty, pretty good here in Kazadum. So let's move on and see Ori's account here of... Uh, I just realized that I didn't change the background behind me. I still have my Harry Potter stuff up from Tuesday night. No Tolkien stuff on the shelf behind me tonight because I have my stack of Tolkien books right here on the desk in front of me because I was using them all day. Sometimes I just think of, of you know, doing the academic work more than I think of decorating the studio. This is a flaw in my, my production format here. Yes. Um, let me see. Uh, Merging Puppy asks, if Jaren didn't have a wife, how did he get folk? Uh, that is an excellent question. We do not know. I went looking for uh, any kind of suggestion of Durin's wife and where she came from, but nope, nothing. All the other dwarven founding fathers, as it were, had wives. Specifically, Durin was the only one who didn't. I don't know where his folk came from. It is possible that in the early days of the world, he could craft them from the stone as Aule did. We just, we just don't know. Yeah, good. Um, Shane is asking, are dwarves so materialistic with so much bling because this is all there is? Huh. You're asking about, I guess, the, um, the, the wealth beneath the earth, that, that the, the wealth, uh, not the wealth, but the beauty of the dwarven world is the beauty of the gold, you know, jewelry piece and, and the gemstone. Um, I think there is a part of that. Absolutely. I think that particularly the, the, um, 
the taking of the light from the surface world and the capturing of that light in jams, as we discussed all the way back in The Hobbit. I mean, that's referenced all the way back in the Misty Mountains Cold song, and that has certainly been developed since then through the Arkenstone into the pages of The Lord of the Rings. That does seem to be a kind of a recognition of the dwarves' place in the world and a kind of making manifest the beauty of their natural world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this, then, is the next part of the record. I fear he had ill tidings to record in a fair hand, said Gandalf. The first clear word is sorrow, but the rest of the line is lost unless it ends in estra. Yes, it must be yestra, followed by day, being the 10th of November, Balan, Lord of Moria, fell in Dimbledale. He went alone to look in Miramir. An orc shot him from behind a stone. We slew the orc, but many more up from east up the Silverlode. The remainder of a page is so blurred I can hardly make anything out, but I think I can read, We have barred the gates, and then we can hold them long if... And then perhaps horrible and suffer. Poor Balin. He seems to have kept the title that he took for less than five years. I wonder what happened afterwards. But there is no time to puzzle out the last few pages. Here is the last page of all. He paused and sighed. It is grim reading, he said. I fear their end was cruel. Listen, we cannot get out. We cannot get out. They have taken the bridge in second hall. Frar and Loni and Nali fell there. There are four lines smeared, so I can only read, went five days ago. The last lines run, the pool is up to the wall at Westgate. The watcher in the water took Owen. We cannot get out. The end comes and then drums, drums in the deep. I wonder what that means. The last thing written is in the trailing scroll of elf letters. They are coming. There is nothing more. Gandalf paused and stood in silent thought. A sudden dread and a horror of the chamber fell on the company. We cannot get out, muttered Gimli. It is well for us that the pool had sunk a little and that the watcher was sleeping down at the southern end. So, this is now the record of the last days. And I love, I love the repetition of we cannot get out. That genuinely makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. It's so, so gorgeous. Oh, Heroes and Bards is saying exactly the same thing here. Oh, and Danielle too, right here in the YouTube chat. Yes. Oh, and Joshua is asking, have you guys seen the version of Durin's song by Clamavi de Profundis? I just saw this for the first time last week after recording the uh, the live session. It is fantastic. Go check that out on YouTube. It's it's absolutely amazing. I, I adore it. Um, so what has happened here? Uh, we're reading the first part. The first clear word is sorrow, but the rest of the line is lost unless it ends in Esther. Yes, it must be Esther followed by the yesterday being the 10th of November, Balin, Lord of Moria, fell in Dimrel Dale. Fell in Dimrel Dale. He went out to Miramir too. He went out to look into the trackless depths of the Miramir and was shot again by an orc wielding an arrow. So there is uh, wielding a bow, presumably. I mean, unless the orc just threw the arrow, and that seems less likely. Um, so there is still an orc presence out of the eastern gate, down in Dimrel Dale, uh, down in Azanulbazar. So there's a pressure here from the orcs on the eastern gate of Moria. And as we see, we slew the orc, but many more up from east, up the Silverlode. So more orcs are coming up the river towards the eastern gate of Moria, coming up from Mordor. This is an example of Sauron extending forth his power. He is driving the orcs north. We know that, that orcs are emerging from Mordor in greater and greater numbers and are now crossing the wild and are seeking to hold the fastness of Moria, which Sauron knows to be an enormously important strategic location. 
Some more orcs are coming. We have barred the gates and then can hold them long if, and then perhaps horrible and suffer. So what do we do? The orcs are descending upon the eastern gate. Well, we flee to the west. We cross Moria beneath the Misty Mountains. We get out to the Holland Gate, and we're going to pass into the western realm. Hopefully, we can make it to, well, gosh, I don't know. We could head south into Rohan, I suppose. We could make it north up to Rivendell. We could make it much more likely. The much more likely explanation here is that we were going to try and travel west all the way out to dwarven enclaves in the Blue Mountains there. But we cannot get out. We cannot get out. They have taken the bridge in the second hole. Frar and Loni and Nali fell there. There were four lines smeared, went five days ago. The pool is up to the wall at Westgate. Westgate is the Holin Gate. This is the gate that the Fellowship came in through. The Watcher in the Water took Owen. Another member of Thorin's company has fallen. We cannot get out. The end comes and then drums, drums in the deep. We don't know how many dwarves Balin took with him back to Moria, but they were presumably relatively few in number. And now here they are, hemmed into their ancestral home, bound in Khazad-dum. We have the Watcher in the Water on the western flank. We have the orc armies of Mordor, of Sauron, on the eastern flank. And beneath us, the drums. Drums in the deep. The last thing written is the trailing scroll of elf letters. They are coming there is nothing more. And here we see how ruinous this is for Gimli. A sudden dread and a horror of the chamber fell on the company. We cannot get out, muttered Gimli. It is well for us that the pool had sunk a little, that the watcher was sleeping down at the southern end. That is the only reason that they got in. The watcher was sufficient to bar the door. Luckily here, at the beginning of the year, the water has sunk but a little, and the watcher was hampered in his attempts to block the uh, to block the door. Yes. Jackie says, the watcher is so creepy. Jennifer echoes, it is so creepy. Jackie also says, Tolkien could have written horror. I have long thought this. I would give, gosh, a significant amount of money and, who knows, years off my life to read a Lovecraftian cosmic horror story written by J.R.R. Tolkien. I get shivers during all of this, during this entire account. Even when we get the, um, even when we get the account during the Council of Elrond, when, uh, when Glowen is, is accounting for what happened to the Dwarves of Moray, they dug too deep. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful. I just, wow, pretty, pretty great. Angela says, I love that we experience the drums in the movie. Powerful. I need to watch Fellowship this weekend. I really need to watch Fellowship. Yes, yes. Again, it's very good. It's very good. Yes. And Lady Sorka says, poor Gimli, not just his people in his ancestral home, but specifically his uncle and his cousin. And it's easy to miss. But we should watch Gimli through the rest of this chapter because he's a broken dwarf. The beat where Legolas has to pull him to safety because he, even in the midst of, of immediate threat, has his head bowed over Balin's tomb is genuinely touching, genuinely touching for me. Alan says, oh, we should do a Lovecraft seminar. I have thought about it. Obviously, Lovecraft is a very problematic figure. Lovecraft was super racist. You guys just like really, really racist. But if you can dodge his racism in his stories, and there are blessedly a few stories that don't rest upon his, his frankly horrifying worldview, he was a magnificent writer, a genuinely magnificent writer. I would love to do that. Yeah. Shane basically encapsulates the whole story here. Balin renames himself Lord of Moria, and everything falls apart. Yes, everything. 
Good. And Jackie calls out here, the continued consequences of the dwarves' ancient greed. This is very acute, Jackie, as ever. I think you're absolutely right. We see here that the dwarves retake Moria and then immediately go questing for true silver, go questing for mithril. They start digging again. That is what... That is literally what cost you Moria the first time. Even if Durin's Bane isn't still lurking down there somewhere, and who knows, it's been a thousand years, he might not be. Even if Durin's Bane isn't still hanging around, this is what got you in trouble the last time. And yet, dwarves gonna dwarf, I guess. They're going to be true to their natures, and they're going to, to plunge down into the depths. Yeah. Yes, as Fina calls out, and it is Legolas and Elf who saved him. This, theirs is a model friendship. Uh, it absolutely is. It isn't yet, but we are going to get there. Yes. <laughs> good, good. All right. <laughs> Becca Eller says, all of this could have been avoided if Osha Emsha had done their job and inspected this mine site. Yeah, really. You need, you need like some proper coverage here, I think. So, ill tidings in a fair hand gets us to the present. Gandalf had hardly spoken these words when there came a great noise, a rolling boom that seemed to come from depths far below and to tremble in the stone at their feet. They sprang toward the door in alarm. Doom, doom, it rolled again as if huge hands were turning the very caverns of Moria into a vast drum. Then there came an echoing blast. A great horn was blown in the hall, and answering horns and harsh cries were heard further off. There was a hurrying sound of many feet. They're coming, cried Legolas. We cannot get out, said Gimli. Trapped, cried Gandalf. Why did I delay? Here we are, caught just as they were before. But I was not here then. We will see what doom, doom, came the drumbeat and the walls shook. Slam the doors and wedge them, shouted Aragorn, and keep your packs on as long as you can. We may get a chance to cut our way out. No, said Gandalf. We must not get shut in. Keep the east door ajar. We will go that way if we get a chance. Another harsh horn call and shrill cries rang out. Feet were coming down the corridor. There was a ring and clatter as the company drew their swords. Glamdring shone with pale light and sting glinted at the edges. Boromir set his shoulder against the western door. Wait a moment! Do not close it yet, said Gandalf. He sprang forward to Boromir's side and drew himself up to his full height. Who comes hither to disturb the rest of Balin, Lord of Moria? He cried in a loud voice. There was a rush of hoarse laughter, like the fall of sliding stones into a pit. Amid the clamor, a deep voice was raised in command. Doom, boom, doom, went the drums in the deep. With a quick movement, Gandalf stepped before the narrow opening of the door and thrust forward his staff. There was a dazzling flash that lit the chamber and the passage outside. For an instant, the wizard looked out. Arrows whined and whistled down the corridor as he sprang back. There are orcs, very many of them, he said, and some are large and evil, black uruks of Mordor. For the moment they are hanging back, but there is something else there. A great cave troll, I think, or more than one. There is no hope of escape that way. And no hope at all if they come to the other door as well, said Boromir. Gandalf facing down the orc hordes here within the depths of Moria, and doing so in the name of Balin, Lord of Moria. Who comes hither to disturb the rest of Balin, Lord of Moria, he cried in a loud voice. This is a great moment for Gandalf. Oh, Glorfin David calls out, for any Trekkies, the walls shook. Reminds me of Shaka, when the walls fell. I love that episode of Next Gen. That is so good. Yes. And as Jackie calls out, another repeated disaster here with them being besieged in the Chamber of Records. Yes, absolutely. Oh, and Nicole has joined us. Hello, Nicole. Glad to have you with us. Yes. Doom, doom, we are trapped. 
says Gildarts. And Merging Puppy asks a great question here. Who does Gandalf think is coming? Well, we'll get ahead to that because there is a really interesting line when we finally face off against uh, against uh, Durin's Bane here. Um, Heroes and Bard says, are orcs ever not large and evil? Well, apparently not. We're going to get a beat... Um, Actually, yes, no, I think I've pulled it on the very next slide, so we'll talk about that in just a moment. I do want to talk a little about, about the use of boom and doom here. Doom, of course, is, is beautifully wrought here because we can feel doom in the modern sense coming upon us. And you'll remember that we talked about this back in uh, the Council of Elrond when Elrond gets that great line, that is the doom that we must deem. Uh, both doom and deem come from the old English word dom, meaning law or judgment. You know, a judgment has been made. A doom is, is that judgment placed upon you. The sense of doom meaning ruin, meaning catastrophe, meaning, you know, terrible destruction, is actually fairly modern. And this is why Tolkien doesn't generally use it, except kind of onomatopoetically here. Doom, meaning destruction, comes from uh, the early 17th century from the Christian myth of Judgment Day. That is the idea, is that the doom that is laid upon us in Judgment Day just means judgment, but also means destruction also means, you know, outright ruin. So that's where that modern connotation of the word doom comes from, but it simply means, yes, kind of, you have been judged. That is the doom that we must deem, yes. Um, so we get this lovely rhythm here. Boom, doom, doom. It rolled again as if huge hands were turning the very caverns of Moria into a vast drum. And then we get a great moment of connection between Legolas and Gimli. They are coming, cried Legolas, echoing the words from the document. We cannot get out, said Gimli. Said Gimli, crucially. You'll note, we cannot get out. No exclamation point, no cried. We just get very flat dialogue attribution for Gimli there, and that tells us a great deal about his emotional state right now. Aragorn is taking action, but Gandalf refuses. No, no, we're not actually going to lock ourselves in here again. That doesn't seem like it ends well, traditionally. Glorfinn David is reminding me of Gleam in the Gloom. Uh, a wonderful pair of words, an opposed pair of words that Tolkien just uses again and again in the pages of The Hobbit. It's pretty great. Yes, good, good. Um... Oh, Lady Sorka says, I've been listening to the History of English podcast lately, and it's actually been really interesting listening to it and personally connecting all the Anglo-Saxon bits to Tolkien. That's really good. Yeah, I've heard good things about that podcast. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet because my podcast listening time is severely curtailed by my podcast producing time, but I have heard good things. Um, good. Yeah, so Gimli here is is weighed under by the memory of what has happened here before. They're coming, cried Legolas. We cannot get out, said Gimli. Then... We get the drawing of the swords. Glamdring shines with the pale light. Sting glints at the edges. Notice that we get no mention here of Frodo. No mention of Frodo yet. Boromir sets his shoulder against the western door, but Gandalf has something to do first. Fighting back against the black Uruks of Mordor and the great cave troll, I think, or more than one. There is no hope of escape that way. He wants to check it out. Speaking of Frodo, heavy feet were heard in the corridor. Boromir flung himself against the door and heaved it too. Then he wedged it with broken sword blades and splinters of wood. The company retreated to the other side of the chamber, but they had no chance to fly yet. There was a blow on the door that made it quiver, and then it began to grind slowly open, driving back the wedges. A huge arm and shoulder with a dark skin of greenish scales was thrust through the widening gap. Then a great, flat, toeless foot was forced through below. There was a dead silence outside. 
Boromir leapt forward and hewed at the arm with all his might, but his sword rang, glanced aside, and fell from his shaken hand. The blade was notched. Suddenly, and to his own surprise, Frodo felt a hot wrath blaze up in his heart. The Shire! he cried, and springing beside Boromir, he stooped and stabbed with Sting at the hideous foot. There was a bellow, and the foot jerked back, nearly wrenching Sting from Frodo's arm. Black drops dripped from the blade and smoked on the floor. Boromir hurled himself against the door and slammed it again. One for the Shire! cried Aragorn. The hobbit's bite is deep. You have a good blade, Frodo, son of Drogo. There was a crash on the door, followed by crash after crash. Rams and hammers were beating against it. It cracked and staggered back, and the opening grew suddenly wide. Arrows came whistling in, but struck the northern wall and fell harmlessly to the floor. There was a horn blast and a rush of feet, and orcs, one after another, leapt into the chamber. How many there were, the company could not count. The affray was sharp, but the orcs were dismayed by the fierceness of the defense. Legolas shot two through the throat. Gimli hewed the legs from under another that had sprung up on Balin's tomb. Boromir and Aragorn slew many. When thirteen had fallen, the rest fled shrieking, leaving the defenders unharmed, except for Sam, who had a scratch along the scalp. A quick duck had saved him, and he had felled his orc, a sturdy thrust with his barrow blade. A fire was smoldering in his brown eyes that would have made Ted Sandyman step backwards if he had seen it. Now is the time, cried Gandalf. Let us go before the troll returns. <laughs> Saved girl calls out of the YouTube chat. Boromir rushes in. Boromir is very much the Magnus Burnsides of the Fellowship. I completely agree. Yes. Merging Puppy says, Tolus, what a weird specific detail. Yes, Tolus here is great. A huge arm and shoulder with a dark skin of greenish scales was thrust through the widening gap. Then a great flat Tolus foot was forced through below. We get the greenish scales being suggestive of the trolls, certainly in some of the descriptions that Tolkien gave of the trolls and even of the illustrations that he made of the trolls we can see them scaled their skin is scaled and rugged and the great flat toeless foot the idea that this is ill-formed the idea that this is inhuman that we are dealing with something that is more i don't know homunculus more more golem than man you know this is not a natural being it is itself ill-formed it is not in the nature of the, the Ainulindalade is not in the nature of Iluvatar to create such things. The troll is unnatural. It is ugly in that sense. And not in the sense of being, you know, physically repulsive and repellent, though it is that too, presumably, but in the sense of being unfinished and, and poorly made, poorly crafted. So Boromir leaps forward, hews at the ham, his sword rings and is taken, a, is taken aside. The blade was notched. That's how serious the troll is, that it notches Boromir's Gondorian sword, this, this sword of good steel, doesn't survive, unfortunately. Um, and then Frodo. Suddenly, to his own surprise, Frodo felt a hot wrath spring up in his heart. The Shire! he cried, and springing beside Boromir, he stooped and stabbed with Sting at the hideous foot. This is a moment of great heroism for Frodo. And it reminds us, of course, of Frodo on Weathertop calling out Elbereth Gilthoniel and lunging at, at the Nazgul, lunging at the Witch King of Angmar and thereby saving himself. But I wonder about this moment. I wonder about this moment primarily because of that phrase, to his own surprise, honestly. Suddenly, and to his own surprise, Frodo felt a hot wrath blaze up in his heart and he calls out the Shire, not for Balin, who we know he was thinking about right at the beginning of the chapter. Not Elbereth Gilthoniel, again. Not, screw you, orcs, but the Shire. He's thinking of home. He's thinking of something that is precious to him. And I find myself wondering if this is 
just Frodo, if this is just the ring, or if this is Frodo and the ring acting in concert. And we may, of course, trivially think, well, why wouldn't the ring want to be taken by the orcs again? Why wouldn't the ring want to be captured again? We don't know what the relationship is there. We know that the ring escaped from orcs at the Battle of Gladden Field. There's no really obvious explanation why, having turned invisible, Isildur chose to try and swim the Anduin. Whereas if he had simply crept away, presumably the orcs would not have been able to follow him, but they find him in the river because he is splashing around in the river, and then they kill him. So presumably, or, or possibly, we may interpret that as a bid from the ring to get away from the orcs. Perhaps the ring does not want to be born by an orc, by a goblin. Something here triggers Frodo. Something here sends Frodo forward. But it isn't even the most important thing that happens on this page. The most important thing that happens on this page is right at the end. Though, okay, let's call out Aragorn. One for the Shire, the Hobbit's bite is deep. You have a good blade, Frodo, son of Drogo, not Frodo Baggins, not Frodo, my friend. Aragorn is, as he has before, as many of the characters have, particularly back in the Council of Elrond, we called this out then, is giving Frodo the proper kind of mythic honorific. He's not Frodo Baggins. He is Frodo, son of Drogo. That is Frodo's true name in this mythic, heroic sense. Galadriel says, I don't think the ring would make Frodo become so brave and noble. His exclamations seem to have some sort of power in it. It's possible. Um, yes, uh, and, and Jackie says the safety of the Shire or the preservation of it seems to continue to be Frodo's driving motivation. I do think that's true, but it's the hot wrath. It's not fear. It's not desperation. It is anger. It is, it is textually explicitly fury. The Shire, he cried, and stabs the foot. And that wrath does not seem to be terribly Frodo-ish. Doesn't seem to be terribly Hobbit-ish. How many times have we seen Hobbits really lose their tempers? I mean, not many. But here Frodo is consumed with, with fury. And it may be fury over the, over the death of Balin. It may be fury over the injustice that was done to these dwarves, to the tragedy that has taken place in this very room. He may be thinking of these things and, of course, thinking about what would happen if the orcs ever got to the Shire. Yes, but he's not acting out of fear. He's not acting out of desperation. He's not even acting out of courage. He's acting out of fury, a hot wrath within him. And when I think of Frodo experiencing negative emotions... I'm generally more willing to credit the ring with some presence there, particularly when we get to his own surprise. In any case, the orcs rush in, 13 are slain, one of which is killed by Sam. Except for Sam, who had a scratch along the scalp, a quick duck had saved him, and he had felled his orc, a sturdy thrust with his barrow blade. A fire was smoldering in his brown eyes that would have made Ted Sandyman step backwards if he had seen it. I love the invocation there of Ted Sandyman. I love how we, how we turn back to, yes, yes, Merging Buffy says, Sam must really hate Ted Sandyman. This description, seems, uh, this description seems uncharacteristically aggressive. See, I have no problem at all believing that Sam is consumed with a fury. He's seen his his master put in danger. He's seen his friends put in danger. So Sam is absolutely doing what Sam does, but uh, it's such a heroic moment. This, to the best of my recollection, is the first life that Sam has taken. This is the first time that Sam has killed. This is the first time that Sam has even wielded his sword in, in actual anger, in, in actual fury. I mean, he, presumably he had his sword in his hand when we were fighting the wargs, but even the wargs are different from this. You know, He has killed a sentient being. He has killed someone, and that's 
powerful. That's important. Sam here is, as ever, epically, epically heroic. All right, let's keep moving forward as we fly now through Moria. Oh, I guess I didn't pull the slide that I was thinking of earlier. Um, okay, before we get to this, uh, <laughs> we get a brief description earlier of a, I think this is um, right before Frodo is injured slash not injured because did I mention the mithril coat that I'm wearing, the fetching little mithril corslet that I'm wearing? Um, we get this beat where the orc comes into the room and he is described of a great orc of almost man height. So he is a large orc that is almost as tall as a man. You'll remember that Aragorn is canonically six feet, six inches tall. Boromir, six feet, four inches tall. So they are tall by the standards of modern men, perhaps, but still, you know, <laughs> nothing at all compared to the men of ancient Numenor. But uh, this orc, being a great orc, being larger, this, this orc chieftain, is, is more significant physically than the other orcs and is almost approaching that height. So it might be tempting to think of the orcs, particularly if you've been watching the Peter Jackson movies, as being more, much more physically impressive. We must remember remember that the orcs of the Lord of the Rings are, in large part, there are different tribes, and, you know, the Uruks are, are larger and more dangerous, and we'll get to the Urukai later, but the, the general rank-and-file orcs are the goblins of the Hobbit, so they are generally more diminutive and a little more spindly and vicious more than they are physically powerful, which makes more sense, I think, of the accounts that we get of, of the orcs using bows and arrows, you know? We don't think of the orcs of the, the Peter Jackson movies as generally being reliant on ranged weapons, but goblins who are sneaky and cruel will absolutely rely on ranged weapons. They will absolutely attack from the position of safety. They will, they will just murder more than they will fight if they get the opportunity, yeah. Um, Oh, Galadrabeki is taking off. Thank you for joining us, Galadrabeki. It has been an absolute pleasure having you here. I hope that you enjoy the rest of the the rest of the podcast. Good. Um, <laughs> good. Oh, yes. Heroes and Bard says people in this book don't like disclosing the artifacts of power they keep on their person. Yes. First, the Elven Rings of Power, and now the Mithril. Yeah, we were just talking about it. Frodo is the thing, and Frodo's like myth, myth, Mithril doesn't ring a bell. Doesn't ring a bell. Excuse me while I clank while I walk because of the you know, just pots and pans that I have beneath my vest. Okay, let's move into, I'm not going to have time for Q&A tonight. Anyone who called that at the beginning of the session, you win a prize. At the end of an hour, they had gone a mile or maybe a little more and had descended many flights of stairs. There was still no sound of pursuit. Almost they began to hope that they would escape. At the bottom of the seventh flight, Gandalf halted. It is getting hot, he gasped. We ought to be down at least to the level of the gates now. Soon I think we should look for a left-hand turn to take us east. I hope it is not far. I am very weary. I must rest here a moment, even if all the orcs ever spawned are after us. Gimli took his arm and helped him down to seat to a seat on the step. What happened the way up there at the door? he asked. Did you meet the beater of the drums? I do not know, answered Gandalf. But I found myself suddenly faced by something that I have not met before. I could think of nothing to do but to try to put a shutting spell on the door. I know many... But to do things of that kind rightly requires time, and even then the door may be broken by strength. As I stood there, I could hear orc voices on the other side. At any moment, I thought they would burst it open. I could not hear what was said. They seemed to be talking in their own hideous language. All I caught was gosh, that is, fire. Then something came into the chamber. I felt it through the door, and the orcs themselves were afraid and fell silent. It laid hold of the iron ring, and then it perceived me and my spell— what it was, I cannot guess, but I have never felt such a challenge. 
The counter spell was terrible. It nearly broke me. For an instant the door left my control and began to open. I had to speak a word of command. That proved too great a strain. The door burst in pieces. Something dark as a cloud was blocking out all the light inside, and I was thrown backwards down the stairs. All the wall gave way, and the roof of the chamber as well, I think. I am afraid Balin is buried deep, and maybe something else is buried there too. I cannot say. But at least the passage behind us was completely blocked. I have never felt so spent, but it is passing. And now what about you, Frodo? There was no time to say so, but I have never, never been more delighted in my life than when you spoke. I feared it was a brave but dead hobbit that Aragorn was carrying. Something came into the room. Something of shadow and darkness. Something of gosh in the black tongue. Something of fire. Something that intimidates the hell out of Gandalf and stresses his magic as nothing else ever has. Here he is exhausted. And the only way that they have escaped, the only reason they have made it as far as they have and done so largely in silence without the threat of pursuit or without at least the, the reality of pursuit is that the taking out of the door, the exchange of spell and counterspell and then the super evocative and enigmatic uh, speaking of a word of command breaks the door, breaks the wall, brings down the roof, buries the whole of records, buries Balin's tomb and buries whatever else was contained within there. Becca Eller asks, uh, calling out Gandalf's, Gandalf's reference here, do orcs spawn? Do we know their reproductive ways? Uh, no, we don't know, basically. We don't know where orcs come from. Tolkien worked on various versions of the origins of orcs throughout his entire career and did not, by the time of his death, settle on a finished version. So there are versions in which they are wrought from the stone and the earth, much as the dwarves were. There are versions when they are corrupted elves. You know, they are elves that have been taken by, by Melkor and taken by the shadow and transformed into these orcs. We just don't... No, unfortunately, there is no definitive version. So spawn they may. We, we just have no idea. Um, and unfortunately, just don't get a really strong perspective on orcs in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. We, we, get their, we get the sense of them as being evil, as being corrupt, as being kind of monolithic in that sense. But we don't get a better perspective. We don't get any insight into orc culture or, or even... See, this is important, right? Because this is the root of some fairly elementary and I think fairly ill-conceived allegations of racism that are oftentimes placed at J.R.R. Tolkien's feet. That basically the good guys are super good and the bad guys are super bad. Thus, it's perfectly okay for the good guys to murder the, the bad guys. And we don't have to worry about whether orcs are sentient or whether they have souls or whether they have any kind of right to life or whatever. One of the reasons that Tolkien struggled with the origin of orcs is that orcs must necessarily be irredeemable. They must necessarily be so corrupted that we needn't think about such things. They are, they are agents of the shadow. They are tools of the shadow more than they are beings in their own right. And he kind of moved back and forth and came up, as I said, with various different versions, but we don't have the canonical ending. So, hey, maybe spawned. Maybe spawned in great spawning pits. We have no idea. Kind of like, like I don't know, frog spawn, I guess. Just... That's unpleasant. Now I keep thinking of that scene from The Two Towers, which is, yeah. As Nicole says, well, when mommy orcs and daddy orcs love each other very much, they have special orc hugs. Um, yeah. Ugh. 
pretty terrible. Danielle says, I like the corrupted elf theory because it is sad and terrible. I like that too. That is, that is my preferred theory. That is my preferred perspective on orcs, though it does raise that kind of ethical question. Is there any hope of redeeming an orc? Is there any hope of redeeming an individual orc? And is there any hope of redeeming orc kind? Have they fallen so deeply into corruption that, that there is no hope for them? Presumably, if that is the case, then presumably there is no hope for them because we know that Gandalf will preserve Gollum's life because there is slim hope, but that is not no hope. That's enough. You know, the, the faintest possibility of redemption or of improvement is enough for Gandalf to preserve Gollum's life. So presumably if we could restore or, or reclaim orcs, then maybe, but I guess not. I mean, we don't worry about, you know, restoring the nine. We don't worry about whether or not the, the Nazgul can be, can be redeemed, can be, you know, drained of their corruption or, or purified of their corruption. We don't generally worry about that because they're just so far under the influence of the shadow that at that point you are not whatever you were before. You have become something else. You have become something much more dangerous. And yeah, that's, that's tricky. Yeah. Um, let me see here. Okay, I think we're caught up. Um, yes, uh, Jackie says, I think he never finished the Orc Origin explanation because it was pretty difficult for him, especially the Twisted Elves version. Yeah, that's, that's it's, it's not good, you guys. It's really not good. I mean, think about these sequences if instead of, of you know, anonymous bad guys, we're dealing with, we're dealing with, you know, kin of Legolas, kin of Elrond, particularly when you think about how old elves are, how long elves live. If orcs are corrupted elves, are they similarly effectively immortal? I mean, that's terrifying. We might know some of these orcs. Some of these individual orcs may have been elves, you know, back in Valinor. We've no idea. That's why at the same time, particularly in the pages of The Hobbit, I really like the idea that goblins are wrought of stone and earth by the shadow in the same way that dwarves were wrought of the stone and the earth by Aulai. Because as we discussed back in the pages of The Hobbit, there are a lot of similarities between goblins then, orcs, and dwarves, you know? Dwarves live underground, they manufacture, they are a little avaricious, they are a little greedy, they are somewhat insular, they are skilled in warfare. Goblins, orcs are pretty much the same except darker, pretty much the same except worse. And I kind of like that idea more. I'm less troubled, at least, by that idea. I do agree that the corrupted elves idea is more heartbreaking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's uh, let's keep going here into, oh, there's a, uh, yeah, Lady Sorka says, if they're corrupted elves, maybe they can go to the halls of Mandos and may redeem themselves there and possibly be re-embodied. That would fit into Tolkien's very Roman Catholic philosophies. Possibly, actually, yes. Um, yes, not redeemed in this life. Gosh, that's actually a really good kind of philosophical solution to the orc problem, isn't it? If orcs individually you know, as, as, as corporeal beings are corrupted beyond the hope of redemption, then actually the best thing, the most virtuous thing that we can do is slay them and liberate their fea to return to the halls of Mandos and, and await whatever comes next, possibly redemption and possible re-embodiment as elves again. That's, 
Gosh, Lady Zorka, I think you've just solved that problem. I like that a lot. Um, I'm not sure that there's textual element, uh, textual evidence for that, but yeah. yeah. Or as Shane says, when the world is remade and the song is resung, perhaps, yes. Or when the uh, when the, the dwarves awaken from beneath the earth to help Owley in the great reconstruction after the war at the end of the world. Yeah, I mean, depending on your, your perspective, yeah. Good, good. Okay, um, let's keep going. Uh, there are a couple of interesting questions here that I would really like to get to. I think maybe we will talk separately about evil in the pages of The Lord of the Rings because evil in Tolkien's Legendarium is genuinely fascinating. Like the role of evil, the role of malevolence, the role of greed, the desire for power. These things are treated really very consistently right from, you know, page one of the Ina Lindley, literally page one of the Ina Lindley and, and, and Melkor's desire to subvert the song of the Ainur. Um, all the way through to, to you know, Melkor and, and, and Sauron and Saruman and Ted Sandyman. S-names, you guys. S-names are trouble. Sackville Bagginses? S-names really are trouble. Huh. Anyway, let's keep moving on. Um, because, you know, we've got a fight to get to, and we're about now to make it to uh, fire and caverns. They now went on again. Before long, Gimli spoke. He had keen eyes in the dark. I think, he said, that there is light ahead, but it is not daylight. It is red. What can it be? Gosh, muttered Gandalf. I wonder if that is what they meant, that the lower levels are on fire. Still, we can only go on. Soon the light became unmistakable and could be seen by all. It was flickering and glowing on the walls away down the passage before them. They could now see their way. In front the road sloped down swiftly, and some way ahead there stood a low archway. Through it the glowing light came. The air became very hot. When they came to the arch, Gandalf went through, assigning them to wait. As he stood just beyond the opening, they saw his face lit by a red glow. Quickly he stepped back. "'There is some new devilry here,' he said, devised for our welcome, no doubt.' But I know now where we are. We have reached the first deep, the level immediately below the gates. This is the second hall of Old Moria. The gates are near. Away beyond the eastern end on the left, not much more than a quarter of a mile. Across the bridge, up a broad stair, along a wide road, through the first hall, and out. But come and look. They peered out. Before them was another cavernous hall. It was loftier and far longer than the one in which they had slept. They were near its eastern end. Westward it ran away into darkness. Down the center stacked, uh, stalked a double line of towering pillars. They were carved like bowls of mighty trees whose boughs upheld the roof with a branching tracery of stone. Their stems were smooth and black, but a red glow was darkly mirrored in their sides. Right across the floor, close to the feet of two huge pillars, a great fissure had opened. Out of it a fierce red light came, and now and again flames licked at the brink and curled around the bases of the columns. Wisps of dark smoke wavered in the hot air. If we had come by the main road down from the upper halls, we should be trapped here, said Gandalf. Let us hope the fire now lies between us and pursuit. Come, there is no time to lose. I'm going to look at the last line first here because I love these moments. If we had come by the main road down from the upper halls, we should be trapped here. Let us hope that the fire now lies between us and pursuit. Doesn't that remind you of... Any number of incidents earlier in this book, earlier in The Hobbit, isn't this emblematic of the Thorin's company arriving at Baron's house only to be told that, well, actually, if you'd followed your original plan, you would be 
just out of luck. If you hadn't been captured by Thranduil and imprisoned in the halls of the Elven King, you would have been out of luck. If you had taken any number of other routes, if you had followed your plans at any point and not been disrupted in them, things would not have worked out. Here, if they had followed the main road down from the upper halls, they would be trapped, they would be stuck, they would be stranded. But because of the disasters that they have faced, because of the calamities that they have endured, they now have a chance. Hobbit luck, as Angela Lurie calls out at the end, uh, uh, calls out here at the uh, uh, in the YouTube chat. Yes. And old Toby says, always liked how the dwarves bring the outside with them by carving the pillars as trees. It is such a great detail here. I love that evocation. It's it's just beautiful. And it's it's a little dissimilar to any other accounts that we get of dwarven architecture. But it absolutely reminds me, perhaps ironically, of Thranduil's Halls. I love the depiction in the movies of the Hobbit trilogy, where we see Thranduil's Halls as being subterranean. They are supposed to be, you know, they are within caves, but the caves are carved, again, with the likenesses of trees and traceries of stone indicating branches. And it's beautifully done. I love its evocation here, too. It's, it's very, very strong. So now we have fire. Some new devilry here devised for our welcome, no doubt. This fissure here, this, this, this ancient heat that lies beneath the earth. Gandalf does not believe for a moment that this is natural. Something here has happened. Something has been done. Yes. Good. Oh, Heroes and Bards says, this is another one, right? If Frodo had left earlier, the water might be higher and the guardian of the door might have taken them. Absolutely right. Yes. Yes. Uh, the Princess Ostrich says, when we say devilry in Middle-earth, who are we referring to? Uh, that's an excellent question. Not the devil. There is no devil. Uh, we're just using it in its disassociative form. We're using it in its... In its genericized form, I suppose. And of course, that's not inconsistent. We can blame this on J.R.R. Tolkien himself, not as the author of this book, but as the translator of this book. He presumably is taking some Sindarin word, or not Sindarin word, I suppose, some Westron word. These would have come down to him from from uh, the Red Book of Westmarch. So presumably, he is taking some Westron, some common tongue word, and translating that into modern English. So there is some word that the hobbits used that meant, you know, mischief or or uh, malicious you know evil intent that he has translated as devilry this is the solution to all of the kind of linguistic anachronisms that we find within the pages of the lord of the rings yeah um uh, alan is anticipating the very next slide balrogs and wizards are basically two sides of the same coin both are Maiar, correct um yes yes in the sense that they are both Maiar. I don't necessarily say, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that they are two sides of the same coin for, well, we'll get into that in just the next, in just the next page. Yes. Good. Are there demons in Middle Earth? Asks Angela Lurie. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Balrogs. <laughs> Balrogs are demons. Let's get to the next page because I have some history here of, of, of Balrogs, you guys. Here now, as I have 20 minutes left to cover the last three slides, and, you know, it's not as though I have a lot to talk about here as we, we face uh, the bridge of Khazadum. Suddenly, Frodo saw before him a black chasm. At the end of the hole, the floor vanished and fell to an unknown depth. The outer door could only be reached by a slender bridge of stone without curb or rail that spanned the chasm with one curving spring of 50 feet. It was an ancient defense of the dwarves against an enemy that might capture the first hole in the outer passages. They could only pass across it in single file. At the brink, Gandalf halted, and the others came up in a pack behind. Lead the way, Gimli, he said. Pippin and Merry next, straight on and up the stair beyond the door. 
Arrows fell among them. One struck Frodo and sprang back. Another pierced Gandalf's hat and stuck there like a black feather. Frodo looked behind. Beyond the fire, he saw swarming black figures. There seemed to be hundreds of orcs. They brandished spears and scimitars, which shone red as blood in the firelight. Doom! Doom! rolled the drumbeats, growing louder and louder. Doom! Doom! Legolas turned and set an arrow to the string, though it was a long shot for his small bow. He drew, but his hand fell and the arrow slipped to the ground. He gave a cry of dismay and fear. Two great trolls appeared. They bore great slabs of stone and flung them down to serve as gangways over the fire. But it was not the trolls that had filled the elf with terror. The ranks of the orcs had opened, and they crowded away as if they themselves were afraid. Something was coming up behind them. What it, could, what it was could not be seen. It was like a great shadow, in the middle of which was a dark form of man-shape, maybe, yet greater, and a power and terror seemed to be in it and go before it. It came to the edge of the fire, and the light faded as if a cloud had bent over it. Then with a rush it leapt across the fissure. The flames roared up to greet it, and wreathed about it, and a black smoke swirled in the air. Its streaming mane kindled and blazed behind it. In its right hand was a blade like a stabbing tongue of fire. In its left it held a whip of many thongs. Aye, aye, wilt Legolas, a Balrog, a Balrog is come! Gimli stared with wide eyes. Durin's bane, he cried, and letting his axe fall, he covered his face. A Balrog, muttered Gandalf. Now I understand. He faltered and leaned heavily on his staff. What an evil fortune, and I am already weary. A Balrog. Must be something bad for Legolas to screw up his shot, says Princess Ostrich. Yes, yes. The arrow striking Frodo and pinging away. The arrow striking Gandalf right in the hat. How unjust can it be? A Balrog, then is a Maya. It is one of the uh, one of the original spirits that entered the world upon its creation. A being of the order of Gandalf. Yes, Gandalf was originally a Maiar. He was of the Maya before he was embodied as one of the Istari, one of the wizards. Sauron, also one of the Maya before he was corrupted by Melkor. This one, this particular Balrog, Durin's Bane, as I said, seems to have fled from the War of Wrath in the First Age and spent the last 5,000, last 6,000 years by this point, chilling out under the misty mountains until the dwarves of Khazadum dug too deep. That, as I say, was a thousand years ago. So, the... Um, <laughs> a Balrog, says Glorfin David, rather than the Balrog, suggests that there are others. Yes, we'll get to that in just a moment. How many things could it have been for Gandalf not to have been sure? Well, this is the question. What else could Gandalf have, have thought it was? We just don't know. That's not to say necessarily that he would he would assume that it was um, that he would assume it was a Balrog. It's not necessarily you know. Uh, we don't necessarily know that Gandalf has ever faced a Balrog before. We just don't know. We also don't know exactly how many Balrogs there are. Okay, Balrogs. Uh, let's talk a little about pluralization. We don't know that Balrogs is the uh, plural of Balrog because Balrog is, uh, is a Sindarin word and Sindarin words don't pluralize like that, but we're just going to use the common English uh, pluralization here. Um, so, uh, <laughs> a lot of love for the Balrog here in the YouTube chat, let me tell you. There is a lot going on. Um, Balrogs are some of the very worst foes, says Gildarts. That's absolutely true. Yes. Yeah. No, it is. It's a, it's a gorgeous uh, passage here as we get the doom, doom, the drumbeats, doom, doom. Then we get Legolas losing his shot. You're absolutely right. Is is a, a 
surprising moment for anyone. Then the two great trolls, we just fought one troll and Frodo drove it away for a moment, but it is incredibly dangerous. But that's not what we're really worried about. So Balrogs are beings of flame and fire. They are demonic beings. They are Maiar that were corrupted by Melkor, by Morgoth, back in the years of trees, long before the first age even. He had his demonic army for basically forever. Basically forever. Um, it is, you know, pretty pretty intimidating, I suppose, even here. I'm just, you know, I'm just buying time here, guys. We can talk about the Balrog. It's going to be just fine. Do the Balrogs have a purpose, says David. Um, the Balrogs are simply servants of Morgoth. They are simply uh, of, of the order of, I suppose, I mean, not orcs and trolls exactly, but they are powerful servants of Morgoth. They are just foot soldiers for Morgoth. They are evil, evil warriors. They are not, in the context of the books, as giant as they are in the Peter Jackson movie. In the Peter Jackson movie, the Balrog is... Gosh, I don't know, what, 20, 25 feet tall, something like that. Uh, within the books, they are actually more in the order of the height of men, seven, eight feet tall. It doesn't, uh, doesn't seem to be, yeah. And, and Merging Puppy says, Balrogs, Balrogi, are common enough that at least Legolas seems to be aware of them. Yes. Um, oh, uh, yes, certainly. Balrogs would exist in elven myth. Elves have long memories. They would remember the Balrogs, yes, and certainly they are distinctive enough that they would be identified. Uh, Princess Ostrich says, but you have to ask yourself, before Melkor corrupted them, why did Iluvatar create the Balrog? These are interesting questions. These are interesting questions, yes. Uh, Iluvatar didn't create the Balrog. The Maiar are the lesser spirits. So, okay, the... Um, the disembodied angelic spirits that existed before the creation of the world, the Ainur, come into the world in two forms. The Valar are the most important. They are the most powerful. They are the kind of demigods of, of Middle-earth, as we've discussed before. Um, the host of Maiar that, uh, Maya that come with them. I always screw up the pluralization here. Maya is the plural. Maiar is the, the singular there. And I always, I always screw it up no matter how many times I try and get it correct. So the host of Maya come into Middle-earth at the time that the world is created. And there are an unknown number of them. They are simply disembodied spirits. As I say, Gandalf is a Maya. Sauron was a Maya back before he was corrupted. And the Balrogs were Maya too. They were just disembodied spirits who were seduced over to the dark side by Melkor. And that is why we have these demonic entities now in, in Middle-earth. Yeah. Yeah, good. All right. Let's, um, you know what? Let's get on to the fight. We got to get on to the fight. A Balrog, a Balrog has come. The Balrog reached the bridge. Gandalf stood in the middle of the span, leaning on his staff in his left hand, but in the other, Glamdring gleamed cold and white. His enemy halted again, facing him, and the shadow about it reached out like two vast wings. It raised the whip, and the thongs whined and cracked. Fire came from its nostrils, but Gandalf stood firm. You cannot pass, he said. The orcs stood still and a dead silence fell. I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun. Go back to the shadow. You cannot pass. The Balrog made no answer. The fire in it seemed to die, but the darkness grew. It stepped forward slowly onto the bridge, and suddenly it drew itself up to a great height, and its wings were spread from wall to wall, but still Gandalf could be seen glimmering in the gloom. He seemed small and altogether alone, grey and bent, like a wizened tree before the onset of a storm. 
From out of the shadow, a red sword leaped flaming. Glamdring glittered white in answer. There was a ringing clash and a stab of white fire. The Balrog fell back, and its sword flew up in molten fragments. The wizard swayed on the bridge, stepped back a pace, and then again stood still. "'You cannot pass,' he said." With a bound, the Balrog leaped full upon the bridge. Its whip whirled and hissed. He cannot stand alone, cried Aragorn suddenly and ran back along the bridge. Elendil, he shouted. I am with you, Gandalf. Gondor, cried Boromir and leapt after him. At that moment, Gandalf lifted his staff and crying aloud, he smote the bridge before him. The staff broke asunder and fell from his hand. A blinding sheet of white flame sprang up. The bridge cracked. Right at the Balrog's feet it broke, and the stone upon which it stood crashed into the gulf, while the rest remained poised, quivering like a tongue of rock thrust out into emptiness. With a terrible cry, the Balrog fell forward, and its shadow plunged down and vanished. But even as it fell, it swung its whip, and the thongs lashed and curled about the wizard's knees, dragging him to the brink. He staggered and fell, grasped vainly at the stone, and slid into the abyss. "'Fly, you fools!' he cried, and was gone." For my money, this is the best thing that Tolkien ever wrote. This is the best passage, the best page that he ever wrote. And there is a sense, even while you're reading it, that the professor kind of knew it. Because he does things on this page that he does so infrequently in his entire body of work that they stand out here. I just, I, I don't even know where to start with this. Okay, actually, let's start with the controversy here. Hey, you guys, do Balrogs have wings? <laughs> Can we shout out here in the YouTube chat? Do Balrogs have wings? I'll answer my own rhetorical question. I would let you guys pitch in on this, but unfortunately, the uh, delay here broadcasting via YouTube makes that all but impossible. Balrogs do not have wings. The evidence for that here, I think, is pretty clear. I don't think that you need to look at the Legendarium for proof of that. Uh, if you look at the Legendarium, there is absolute proof of that. It is, it is absolutely definitive within the Legendarium. I would argue that Balrogs do not have wings and cannot fly. But I don't think that you need to look at the Legendarium to find that. And, and the evidence there includes things like the Balrogs being unable to assail the high places of the eagles over Thangorodrim, things like the, uh, the birth of the dragons, the creation of the dragons, which happens long after the creation of Balrogs, being explicitly, explicitly textually marked as the first time that beings of evil assault the air. It's the first time that, that the bad guys have, you know, an air force at that point. Balrogs definitely can't fly if you look at the Legendarium, but you don't have to look at the rest of Tolkien's work. You can look at this page because we get not an account, not a direct account, but a simile. His enemy halted again facing him and the shadow about it reached out like two vast wings. Like two vast wings, not two vast wings, but like two vast wings. We're talking here about the shadow. The f then, if we move ahead, the Balrog made no answer. The fire in it seemed to die, but the darkness grew. The darkness is growing. That's crucial. It stepped forward slowly onto the bridge. Suddenly, it drew itself up to a great height. Its wings were spread from wall to wall. The wings there are the metaphorical wings that we established in the first paragraph. These wings of shadow. The Balrog, 
pretty evidently, pretty textually to me, does not have wings. And, and yes, okay, yes, you're absolutely right. There is an argument here. Um, <laughs> there is an argument. Yes, Joshua says, if it had wings, why would it have to walk across a bridge? And how would it fall? Uh, if they had wings, says heroes and bards, then falling wouldn't be a big deal. This isn't even, in Tolkien's Legendarium, the first Balrog to be killed by falling from a high place. In the fall of Gondolin, Glorfindel kills a Balrog by throwing it down from a high place. So we're pretty clear here that Balrogs cannot fly. Here's the, here's the, I will go this far and no further. If you want to assert that Balrogs that have small vestigial wings, which do not allow them to fly, then textually we're in a kind of ambiguous space. That, that's where we are. The question is not really, I suppose, do Balrogs have wings? It's can Balrogs fly? The answer is a definitive no. There is a reference in, gosh, is that in the Unfinished Tales? Jackie, you may know this. You may be able to, to textually correct me here. Um, but there is a, a beat, maybe in the Unfinished Tales, I genuinely don't remember where it is now. I was just reading it today too, where we get a beat about Balrogs arising and, and uh, setting out with winged speed, but that too, I take it to be metaphorical. Yeah. Uh, how does Gandalf survive, Cam? Cam, what a spoiler. Well, okay, we all know that Gandalf survives this. We're going to talk about Gandalf's survival when we get to his return, effectively. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I think I distracted Jackie. Jackie, where is the reference to Balrogs rising and moving with winged speed? Do you have access to your, your extensive library of, uh, of Tolkien books? Possibly, I don't know. Okay, what do we have here? Um, let's take a look at the... Uh, uh, possibly the best line in, in all of Tolkien. I just love, you cannot pass, he said, as the orc stood still in a dead silence fell. I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. You cannot pass, the dark fire will not, will not avail you, flame of Udun. Go back to the shadow, you cannot pass. I am a servant of the secret fire. Uh, this is basically the only reference to the secret fire that we get in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and it's not entirely clear what it means, but in the Ainulindale, when we are creating the world, there is reference made there to the flame imperishable, which seems to be connected to the spirit, the soul, effectively. The soul is the flame imperishable, and that may be the secret fire. Gandalf is a servant of the secret fire in that he is a servant of life and light. Wielder of the flame of Anor. Anor is the Sindarin word for the sun. So he's just, he's wielding the flame. This may be a veiled reference to the elven ring of fire that he is wearing right now. It may not be. It, it doesn't necessarily need to be a reference to the ring of fire in order for it to be true. The dark fire will not avail you flame of Udun. Udun here is uh, the dwelling of Morgoth beneath Thangorodrim is, was called Udun. Uh, there is also an Udun in Mordor, just a, a valley, a dark place uh, uh, in, in Mordor. But metaphorically, Udun is the Middle-earth version of hell, effectively. But you'll notice here that we're doing something really important. And for those of you who are keeping up with me on Dear Mr. Potter on Tuesday evenings, you've just heard me spend a lot of time talking about elemental associations and the associations that J.K. Rowling makes between the, you know, archetypal elements and the four houses of Hogwarts, for example, and some of the, the conflicts that are embedded within that. Here we see a really interesting elemental conflict because we are seeing fire versus fire. Here the Balrog is wreathed in flame and Gandalf steps up and says, I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you flame of Udun. Go back to the shadow. This is fire versus fire. But these are the two, two kinds of fire that we see in the world. 
the fire that brings light and the fire that brings destruction. Gandalf is a servant of the former, the Balrog a servant of the latter. Look at the passage there, the, the passage that I just quoted, in fact, this third paragraph here on the slide. The Balrog made no answer. The fire in it seemed to die, but the darkness grew. It stepped forward slowly onto the bridge, and suddenly it drew itself up to a great height, and its wings were spread from wall to wall, semicolon. But still Gandalf could be seen glimmering in the gloom. There again, we have that gleaming in the gloom. We have that repetition. Tolkien loves this repetition. He loves the, the, the poetry of this. Gandalf could, still, could be seen glimmering in the gloom, semicolon. He steamed, seemed small and altogether alone, colon, gray and bent, like a, white, like a wizened tree before the onset of a storm. This is unusual for Tolkien. This is an unusual narrative tone here, an unusual narrative register for Tolkien. It's gorgeous. Then we get hard action cuts. And again, this is unusual. This stands out. From out of the shadow, a red sword leaped flaming. Glamdring glittered white in answer. There was a ringing clash and a stab of white fire. The Balrog fell back and its sword flew up in molten fragments. The wizard swayed on the bridge. Gandalf swaying on the bridge breaks my heart every time. Stepped back a pace and then stood still. You cannot pass, he said. Aragorn and Boromir leaping to uh, leaping to Gandalf's defense with cries of Elendil and Gondor, and then Gandalf shattering the bridge. He knows that he is sacrificing himself, it would seem. He knows in his fatigue that this is the only option left open to him to save the fellowship. But then we get his... He staggered and fell, grasped vainly at the stone, and slid into the abyss. Fly, you fools, he cried and was gone. A lot of people in the YouTube chat here uh, are talking about the... Um, talking about all the various brilliant things in the scene in, in The Fellowship of the Ring, I completely agree. This is one of the most successful uh, adaptations that, that Peter Jackson ever did. Um, yeah, good, good. Okay, let's wrap this up with our final slide here. They ran on. The light grew before them. Great shafts pierced the roof. They ran swifter. They passed into a hall bright with daylight from its high windows in the east. They fled across it. Through its huge broken doors they passed, and suddenly before them the great gates opened an arch of blazing light. There was a guard of orcs crouching in the shadows behind the great doorposts towering on either side, but the gates were shattered and cast down. Aragorn smote to the ground the captain that stood in his path, and the rest fled in terror of his wrath. The company swept past them and took no heed of them. Out of the gates they ran and sprang down the huge and age-worn steps, the threshold of Moria. Thus, at last, they came beyond hope under the sky and felt the wind on their faces. They did not halt until they were out of bowshot from the walls. Dimral Dale lay, before it lay about them. The shadow of the misty mountains lay upon it, but eastwards there was a golden light on the land. It was but one hour after noon. The sun was shining. The clouds were white and high. They looked back. Dark yawned the archway of the gates under the mountain shadow. Faint and far beneath the earth rolled the slow drumbeats. Doom. A thin black smoke trailed out. Nothing else was to be seen. The dale all around was empty. Doom. Grief at last wholly overcame them, and they wept long, some standing in silence, some cast upon the ground. Doom. Doom. The drumbeats faded. This is incredible. 
this is just incredible writing. I think this is so beautiful. The flight, the, the grief that is in our wake here, the shadow that lays upon us, we burst out. And then the echoing of the doom of the drums as the company succumbs to grief, as they realize what has happened here in the light, that description. And again, I'll note again here that Tolkien for much of his life was a painter of landscapes. And occasionally we get these glimpses of the landscape with his painter's eye. They did not hold until they were out of shot from the walls, Dimmerdale lay about them. The shadow of the misty mountains lay upon it, but eastwards there was a golden light on the land. It was but one hour afternoon. The sun was shining, the clouds were high and white. We're, we're elevating the tone here beautifully. It is all about light and the sun, of course, the, the fire of Anora here. We are restored to light and to hope. Well, hope is interesting, isn't it? Thus, at last, they came beyond hope under the sky, and felt the wind on their faces. We're going to talk a little more about hope as we move on with the rest of our journey next week and we get to Lothlorien, but this is something to bear in mind. Think about how we, how we feel right now, whether we are triumphant in our escape from Moria or whether we are grief-stricken at the loss of Gandalf. There's so much to discuss here. Isn't Miramir somewhere on the east side, says Glorfinn David? Yes, it's very nearby. We're going to visit it next week, in fact. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is so sad, says Becca, but it's really beautiful and touching. Becca, you have so beautifully encapsulated Tolkien's entire worldview right there. This is tragic, but it is from the sadness that its beauty chiefly comes. It is touching and, and crystalline and, and moving because it is so sad, because it is so human. It is beautiful, not despite the sadness, but in part because of the sadness. Angela's asking, what do you think of cannot to shall not pass? Does it change the meaning of the command? How? Well, Here's the thing. I love Sir Ian McKellen's delivery. I particularly love his Fly You Fools right at the end of that sequence in, in the movie version. But there is a change. Cannot and shall not. Cannot is a statement of fact. Shall not is a statement of challenge, right? Shall not says you can, but you won't. Cannot says you can't, regardless. You, you are unable to cross me. Shall not says you are able to cross me, but you won't. Don't try it. It's going to turn out badly for you. It's going to turn out real bad for you. Let me show you my wizardy ways. The difference there, I think, speaks to Gandalf's confidence. It speaks to the kind of conflict that we're seeing here. And this, I think, is, is true. Let me take this slide down, as beautiful as it is. Um, this, I think, is is part of the kind of fundamental thematic conflict between The Lord of the Rings as a novel and The Lord of the Rings as a film trilogy. One of the things that Peter Jackson kind of loses in the shuffle in the adaptation, and obviously we're going to have plenty of opportunity to talk about this when we spend two weeks discussing each of the three films uh, right at the end of our discussion of The Lord of the Rings. Um, one of the things that Peter Jackson loses a little bit is the real nature of good and evil in The Lord of the Rings. One of the reasons that we associate the White Council, while we associate the good guys with light and the casting of light, whether we're talking about, you know, the, the glowing of Glamdring or we're talking about, yeah, the White Council itself, the light on the end of Gandalf's staff, we're talking about, um, uh, you know, the, the trees of, of Valinor, you know, whatever it is that we're talking about. One of the reasons that we associate the good guys with light and the bad guys with shadow is that shadow can't beat light. Darkness is the absence of light light will always be able to drive back the shadow. It may 
suffer to do so. It may have to cross rough terrain. It may have to endure to do so, but it will always do so. So by changing cannot to shall not, we emphasize Gandalf's personal strength. We emphasize his personal courage, his personal fortitude, his personal power, all of which is important and good. But we de-emphasize the primary conflict between light and dark in the world of Middle-earth. And that, to me, isn't necessarily completely problematic in that sequence, but does bespeak a, a, a thin understanding of, of some of Tolkien's deepest and, and most important themes in the Peter Jackson adaptation. That is where I would, I would put that. I definitely think that shall not is more personally empowering, as I say, because it means you can, but you won't. You can't simply means this is impossible. You will never be able to do this. And that's recognizing, I think, something something absolutely, you know, fundamental about this, this conflict here in, uh, between these, these two, you know, Maya, between these two epic level forces. I was talking earlier, by the way, about the ways in which, um, about the ways in which Balrogs and, and wizards are different. They are, or, or were both Maya, the Balrogs were corrupted, uh, and, and incarnated and the Istari, the wizards were kind of, no, I mean, definitely not corrupted, but were limited in their incarnation. As I've said before, the reason that the, the wizards appear as old men is that they wanted their power to be diminished so that they had to work together to fight Sauron. That's why they came to Middle-earth, is to fight Sauron, to stop Sauron. The reason that there are five of them and the reason that they are kind of physically diminished is that being physically diminished means that no one of them will be able to take up the ring be able to take up, you know, whatever artifacts of Sauron they can find and become the new Dark Lord. So in a sense, the Balrogs are more powerful than the wizards, but Gandalf is wiser and, and has gained greater power in his wisdom than the Balrog can possess in his fire. That was me dinging my fingernail against my wine glass, but it also serves rather beautifully as a counterpoint to the boom and doom of orcish drums beneath the mines of Moria. As we conclude tonight's session, let me share with you the details of next week's session. Next week, The Fellowship of the Ring, Book 2, Chapter 6, Lothlorien, just Lothlorien. One chapter again next week. That is 10 p.m. Eastern, Thursday, September the 7th. I know there was some confusion this week because time zones, you guys, are the worst. I still struggle to stay on top of it. I apologize to everyone who showed up here an hour early for tonight's session or couldn't make it to the later session because they thought it was happening an hour early. As I say, we're formalizing around 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central Time for the next few weeks. So if you have any doubts, it's probably happening then. You can also always check the calendar. Head on over to pointnorthmedia.com, click the podcasts button, and the calendar is right there on the page, and you will be able to see exactly when all the live sessions are taking place. All the latest updates can be found there. As Princess Ostrich says here in the YouTube chat, time zones are bad. That they are. Yes. <laughs> so that will do it for tonight guys thank you so much for joining me for what is almost certainly my favorite chapter in the lord of the rings i i really don't think that tolkien is ever better than this i think that there are some fantastic moments you know we're going to get the battle of pelinar fields we're going to get uh, okay i'm not even going to go through and list all the things that we're going to get because there are so many and this is not for me the most emotionally ruinous moment in the pages of the lord of the rings because that falls to sam of course well get to him on the flank of Mount Doom in about a year's time, but yes. 
This is a wonderful chapter. It has been fantastic to discuss it with you. I'm sure many of you have questions. I will try and make some time next week. Lothlorien is a longer chapter, but perhaps a less dense chapter. We may be able to talk a little more about Balrogs and Durin's Bane and the fall of Moria and all of those things. So if you have questions, get in touch. You can reach me on Twitter using the hashtag tab again, or you can reach me directly via email at, uh, at Point North Media. Yes, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. That will do it. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for your time. I will talk to you all again next week. Until then, take care. Thank you.